Hitchcock, eh? So what do you think? Should Hitchcock stick to thrillers or do you think he knows his way around a romance? Mm, I think he should stick to thrillers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think one of the things that he that makes his thrillers interesting is the romance. So, yeah. I feel... <laughs> How about you? Are you tickled by his... I'm tickled by his antics. I think that Hitchcock can make an effective romance as long as the couple also wants to kill each other. Yeah. I think that's true. This, uh, yeah, the tension between them in this movie is very good. (laughs) Right. (laughs) All right. Let's get to it then. Necromancer. Necromancer. My name is Shira, and I'm a rom-com fan. My name is Brett, and I am a horror movie fan. What do we do each week, Brett? Each week we re- uh, each week we watch and review uh, a rom-com movie as picked by you, and a horror movie as picked by me. And then we remix and remake the movies. We may we turn the rom-com into a horror, and the horror into a rom-com, and it's a grand old time. Yes, it is. And this week we are continuing the theme of Hitchcock, our first director-themed set of episodes. And we are continuing it with Hitchcock's only romantic comedy, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Hitchcock has done other comedies, notably The Trouble with Harry, but I've never seen that movie, so I can't really comment on it. Uh, Yeah, I know that that's Sonia's favorite Hitchcock movie. She loves the trouble with Harry. And it's, I mean, it's just like a quaint, silly, I think it's gotta be based on a play. It's just like a dead body is discovered in a small town and all these people are somehow gathering around it and finding a way to talk to each other. And somehow amongst this silly townsfolk getting together, murder mystery, you, you have like a, a tiny little thread of horror of like, Wait, no, this is a dead guy. Someone killed this guy. Right, right. Yeah. So in in the lead up to the recording of this episode, I decided to refresh my memory on fun facts about this movie. And it sounds like Hitchcock gave different answers at different points regarding whether or not this was just a job. So when he talked to Truffaut little Frenchy French cinema man for his magazine. Uh, He told Truffaut that it was just a job. Uh, And then back in the day when he actually made the movie, he said, no, I wanted to make this movie because I wanted to make a typical American movie with typical American people. And, and I wanted to do this. Uh, And also the other bit of lore is that Carol Lombard uh, who this is one of her second to last movies before she tragically passed away at 33. She's a brilliant comedic actress and you can see it here, but she wanted yeah. to do a movie with Hitchcock because she'd seen his movies. She knew that he understood humor and as a comedic yeah. actress, she, she felt, you know, I could work with this guy. 
and so it, it, it seemed yeah. like it was a passion project between the two of them, despite him disowning it later. This is totally like, uh, I don't know, like a, a famous actor picking a director and saying like, yeah, I want to work with this guy because I want the Oscar. You know what I mean? Like I want the big time. I, I want to give a, a good, I want to give a life uh, career defining performance. Uh, yeah. I think she, she crushes it in this movie. Something also interesting was that Hitchcock apparently thought that uh, Robert Montgomery and Carol Lombard could have been one of those cinema duos along the lines of Nick and Nora or um, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, that their chemistry was strong enough that, you know, had she not passed away tragically, they could have done, you know, a bunch of more films together. That would have been great. Yeah. Like a, a, like a serialized sitcom, you know, like before the day. Yeah. Like, Mr. and Mrs. Smith go to the carnival. I mean, I don't think it would have been (laughs) them uh, acting as Mr. and Mrs. Smith, but continuing to do comedies where they were a couple. Uh, I also thought it was funny that apparently Carol Lombard really liked playing pranks. So she would do things (laughs) like uh, put FDR bumper stickers on Robert Montgomery's car and he was a Republican uh, you know, Hitchcock is famous for saying that actors are like cattle. So she had them build a cow pen near the mm-hmm. set and she brought in three cows and had them labeled with the actors' names. Uh, I, you know, that's serious commitment. It, it could be the fact that she was, you know, happily married to Clark Gable at the time, but I, I highly doubt that Carol Lombard was subjected to the kind of treatment that Tippy Hedren was. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I don't know too much about the older actors as you, but it sounds like Carol Lombard has definitely more clout than introducing Tippy Hedren. <laughs> right. I mean, well, she just, to give a little background on Carol Lombard, So not only was she famous for her relationship with Clark Gable, she was also known as being this sort of effervescent and funny person in real life. She and Clark Gable used to have these big parties. She kind of was kind of like Catherine Hepburn in that she could hang with the guys, so to speak, and liked Mm. to do outdoorsy active things. And then of course, when she passed away, Clark Gable immediately enlisted in the military and went into world war two with a death (laughs) wish because it was so upsetting. Yikes. Um, But it's sad. I feel like she would have made more movies and who knows Hitchcock might've made more romantic comedies if he had his comedy blonde. Right. Um, yeah, just, I think just like with, um, truth about cats and dogs, I had to look this one up too, after I watched it, I don't do that for all the movies, but for this one, because I, I, something fell off and like with truth about cats and dogs where they don't end up together in the end. And it like, it's, it's this totally different indie film ending and it got rewritten this movie. I was like, something feels weird. And then I read a little bit about it and like, yeah, 
Carol Lombard. Totally makes sense. She wants to make a movie with Alfred Hitchcock. Totally makes sense. This movie is very well directed. It's very well acted, but the script, that's the, that's the part that um, Hitchcock throws shade at in the quote that I read. Really? What did he say? Yeah. He says something like I, I, Oh, maybe it wasn't a direct quote, but it made reference or something to the fact that Hitchcock said he worked with what he had, essentially, that he was like, I followed the script. So I'm not he's like, I'm not too happy with how it turned out. I'm very proud of all of it. I followed it. I followed the script. Like he essentially called out the script as being the weak point. And to be honest, I mean, I kind of agree in the sense that I, I hate these characters and their motivations for everything that they do. They deserve each other. But the movie is witty as fuck. Like this movie works on every level, but I just don't, I don't like these two characters together. I just like them in all the situations they get. Do you think that you would have liked it better if it was written as well as the thin man? Oh Yeah. Like if the barbs that, were flying and it was just wit after wit after wit. I think there is wit, but the the wit, I, I don't know. It's coming from a different place or something because, but Thin Man also, those characters are yes anding the synergy of the relationship. And these characters are yes. Anding the destructive forces of the relationship. Right. And that's two completely fundamentally different things. Uh, I thought if this movie, I tried to think of what I would do to quote unquote, fix it, play armchair quarterback. And I was like, maybe if you had voiceovers, no, I don't think voiceovers would improve this movie at all. But if it was like silly voiceover, if it was like, I, 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 there's some movie I watched recently. I can't remember, but it's just like what I think Tom thinks this about me. So or, you mean, you, know, like, you mean I similarly think... to how in pillow talk, you hear what the characters are thinking. Yes, exactly. The pillow talk is the movie. Yes. It, it just that silly kind of like, he thinks he can get one up on me because. But for, I think that for, the actors the did movie, a good job of communicating that. But I don't. For most of the movie, I'm thinking they don't even really like each other. They're when they crazy go out crazy about each other. But when they go out on the romantic date, he's not even into her, and she's like, "Why? Why does she even want him to marry her?" And I, I just okay. Well, explain it. We have, you have to put some context <laughs> to this. Tell us the story, All Brett. Right. So this is going to be hard for me because I, I'm just going to read it right from, from Wikipedia. So feel free to jump in with any character moments. And I've got plenty of them that I'll, I'll try to throw in as many as I can. Just know that even if I feel dismissive about a scene as I read about it, there's probably at least three solid good jokes in that scene that are worth talking about. Okay. This, this movie is great, but... It's it's like a it's like a well made taco with sour cream on it. I just hate sour cream. You know, it ruins the taco for me. Uh, so here we have Anne and David Smith. They are a married couple living in New York City who, though in love, have disagreements that last for days before they reconcile. And so we kind of get to see that as you know they're they're all out of sorts and everyone's gossiping about them, but slowly they kind of 
prim and proper back up and get their act together and stop acting like children and act like adults. Uh, but one morning as they, as they reconcile Anne asks David, if he would marry her again, if he had to do it over. And although he says he is very happy with her now, he would not marry anyone else. And he says he would not because it meant the loss of his freedom and independence. And so he's not really like, I, I'm miserable with you. It's just if I had to do it over again, it would be interesting to see what the other path would be like. As a man, what do you think of questions <laughs> like this? I I hate questions like Does this. Sonia Sonya ask I, questions like this? Well, we have a running joke that we ask, who do you love more, me or the cats? And the running joke is before the other person can even finish the question, the answer is the cats. Uh, so... These questions are silly. They're dumb. I don't think you should put your partner in a hypothetical situation like this. I torture it, my partner with these questions all the time. <laughs> and he knows, I, I, he knows that there's a wrong answer. He knows that he knows when he's being posed a generous, not a generous, sorry, a dangerous question, because this is a very dangerous question that she's asking. Uh, and I don't know why I do this. I don't know why other women do it. Um, but it is, it, it it is done. When when Sonia does it to me, I will say, I, I will give her the answer she wants to hear, which is not the answer that she wants in her heart. You know what I mean? If she asked, if she asked me the question, it's obvious what the answer is, but I'm going to tell her what she wants to hear, which is the answer that creates an argument and a discussion because she likes yelling at me and she likes, she likes being energetic and, and loud. She's, she's Latina. She's, she's spicy and fiery. And so I'll say, I'll say, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't marry you. And she'd be like, what? And I'd be like, what, what were you expecting to hear? Like, what? Yeah, but Carol Lombard is a white woman. So she's right. going to keep everything inside and react quietly to <laughs> what is obviously the wrong answer. I think this is this is like um, the movie that I recommended last theme, uh, Bride Wars. This is this is like Bride Wars. But Bride Wars does it just a tiny bit better. I don't know why. I'd have to watch them both back to back to to really figure it out. But this premise, I get it. You know what? I'm all in. Show me what you got. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to, even though this movie isn't for me, I'm not going to fault it because they they put their cards down and they go, this is what we got. Uh, Let's, let's. Let's go on the roller coaster from here. All hijinks from here on out. So later that day, Harry Deaver, an Idaho County official, informs David at work that due to a jurisdictional mishap, their three-year-old marriage in Idaho was not valid. Since Deaver is also a family acquaintance of Anne's from Idaho, he stops by their apartment to tell Anne and her mother the same thing. So this is where the hijinks, because this could all be solved by just one quick line of communication. I hate the game of chicken and making the situation worse and worse and raising the stakes more and more on something that could all be solved by one sentence. 
but their failure to communicate is the center of their failing marriage. And even though she demands honesty, she starts the movie by lying about her feelings when it comes to his answer. Right. So, yeah, I get it. Like, I can see why people just really are into this movie. It's it's good. So here we go. (laughs) Hijinks, Hijinks town. Uh, and does not mention this to David. So now, and he doesn't mention it to her. And he does not mention it to her. So here we go. Buckle up, buckaroos. She believes that he will remarry her that very night when he invites her to a romantic diner from their past that they went to before they were married. So it's like he's gonna do it all over again. You like you get to like they're like she's a little girl getting to go through it all over again. Uh, but when they arrive at the restaurant, the restaurant is now taken over by a, a cartoon character, this grumpy Mario and Luigi. Guy. Yeah, and he's like, "You want to eat here?" Like, because they're a good class- line. Okay, you have to admit that was a good line. This character is fantastic. This character is great. I I ate it up. Like everything that he was doing, saying it was witty. It was fun. You want to eat I, here? Yeah, uh, it's so great. So, uh, so they they eat at the restaurant. And there's funny bits about like the cat won't eat the soup and all this stuff. And and then because their experience at the restaurant is so bad, they go home. And then David goes. David goes to change. And then when he's like he's getting wine, so this is where it just falls apart for me because he's getting wine. So he's like getting wine or champagne which is romantic so it, to me it's like yeah he's gonna propose to you now but then she f- yells at him before he does it saying why haven't you proposed to me yet and he says i'm just about to do it and then they basically she she throws him okay out. let me explain so this okay, is I need this is to. 1941 brett this gotcha. is 1941 Assuming that the Smiths did not have sex until they were fake married, her mom calls her to ask about the marriage thing because if they're not really married, then it is totally improper for them to spend this night together, for them to spend one more... I I know it sounds insane because you and I are children of the 21st century... And we're millennials. Let me just ask one little follow-up. When 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 they say remarry, was the plan to actually literally go out to the restaurant and then say, Will you marry me? And then go to a church and and literally physically get married right then and there? Or was it to me it was like, hey, I'm gonna get down on one knee, propose to you. Okay, we're proposed. We can sleep together. No, you know, I don't like. I'll put. I'll do it. It, before it wasn't bed. that they were going to go to a church back in those days, because again, a lot of people didn't have sex until they were married. You could go to a judge's house and get a marriage license, like right then and there. So they would have gone to the courthouse or to a county judge's home. And what? It would have been closed. No, no. Th- By the time he got is, home from work and they went out to dinner. This is something that used to happen back in those days. They would literally show up at a judge, like a, a couple that wants to marry would literally show up at a judge's house, wake him up, 
And he would sign the marriage license, give it to them, and then they would be married. This whole thing about, you know, weddings and pomp and circumstance was not as common to all married folk because, again, most people didn't have sex until they were married. And so for the small town Idaho girl, Annie, this idea that they would continue to sleep together even though he hasn't made their marriage legal, is completely unacceptable. And from her perspective, (laughs) he just wants to fuck her without being married to her and leave her high and dry. So that's where the threat is. I'm totally on board. I'm totally on board now. I, 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 what I need, what I seriously, what I need (laughs) is like a footnotes. I need to be able to pause this. If, if, if Sonia were were here watching it with me, I could pause it and ask her, "What am I missing?" and and she could explain it to me just like you explained it to me. Where because I have seen in movies where they go to a judge's house at like ten o'clock at night, and it's like it's like, "Hey, Paul, get the ink out. It's time to sign the marriage license." Right. And it just like to me, I need a footnote saying, "Hey, guy, like I think I I think Seinfeld is is." the new Testament, or I think Seinfeld is the old Testament and curb your enthusiasm is the new Testament in terms of like, I I think they are perfect. They are to be worshiped. They are my Bible. I could quote them and reference them like a priest does with the Bible. Like I worship those things, but for someone watching those things now, you would need a little cliff note to pause it. Like, you know, Amazon, x-ray when you pause the movie and it goes like these are the actors that are in this scene and here's a little bit of trivia about this scene i need a footnote where i pause it and it goes like hey back in the day they used to have something called voicemail and they would leave messages on voicemail so george has to sneak into the apartment and change out the tape because he left an embarrassing message because i like if if that were explained to me I, I, it would make a little bit more sense because part of most of this movie is me going, well, why don't they just do this? You know? So, but the problem is once you explain it to me, it's not funny. You know, you can't explain that once you explain the joke, it's not funny. So unfortunately I'm in this position where I think this is a really good movie, but I just, I can't find it funny, but I think it's fascinating because it is, this movie is so silly like that. Like, yes, the mom is like, holy shit, you need to stay at my place tonight because you in bed with your husband is the worst thing that could happen right now. Totally immoral. So I totally get it. Like, I totally get where you're coming from. It's just, I need a a footnote. And it's sad. Like, I feel bad because, you you know, this movie is good. You feel for Robert Montgomery. Yeah. The movie is very good. So so where are we? Um, He gets kicked out of the apartment. Right. So David protests and claims he was going to ask her shortly, but Anne dismisses him and kicks him out of the apartment. He spends the night at the club, and when he goes home, Anne's maid refuses him entry. But again, like, we go to the club, and we meet his friend, and it's implied... advice. It's implied that his friend... It's like you said, a marriage of convenience, right? Like, with the other lady. Like, his friend... It's implied that he spends a lot of time at the club because he's constantly getting caught doing something... Well, he cheated on his wife. That's why right. he's at the club. He, he, but I also he's got oh. he's got like he's got call girls numbers written on his alcohol bottle. That that was like, a nice touch. He is a, 
Yeah, his advice, anytime he gives the guy advice, you are thinking, this is not advice you should be following in any healthy relationship. Right. Well, first, his advice is to ignore it and act like nothing happened and she'll have to take you back. Uh, And then his second piece of advice is to go out with this awful woman. Um, But I also like the detail at the club that the um, the workers at the club know exactly why he's there, but they're still yeah. uh, the, you know, the peak of politeness. And then when he's there a second night, right. they say, oh, when it's a second night, it's really bad. Yeah, it's uh, and I've been that guy. I've been the guy who who works at the rich, fancy hotel and I see people like. So, you, you know, know, when it's. A husband who's been in a fight with his wife and he's renting a hotel room because he's not allowed at home anymore. I mean, I don't, I can't confirm that that actually happened, but like in my own, in my own personal head canon, like, yeah, I, I, I developed little stories about some of the guests and some, maybe even some of the regulars where I was like, this kind of seems like this is going on. Um, but yeah, like I, I like how they interject all these little side characters, all these people who work for the the upper class people, and they just inject these these funny little moments, and all these characters are like they're fun. Well, I think you know to draw a parallel with the birds, much like how Melanie showing up in Bodega Bay upsets the natural order of the universe. When Mr. Right. and Mrs. Smith are fighting, the uni- the universe is out of balance and everyone can feel it, not just them. Yeah. Yeah, like the the the, the signatures at the beginning and stuff, like the whole world revolves around these two people being happy. It's yeah, it's great. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, David can't get into his own house. He waits in the lobby and sees Anne return with an older gentleman. Believing the man, her suitor, David becomes angry and disheartened. He intercepts Anne and threatens to withhold financial support. And he gets her fired from her new job. Again, this is where I needed some cliff notes because the suitor is, is really her going on a job interview and she's telling the world that she is single and she is miss what's her last name in it uh frank Keimer or something but again yeah apropos to the time period married women aren't allowed to have jobs right but she, so she she jumps she she day one and this is where it's like Dude, day one, you go out and get a job. There's no way. You got to go online and fill a billion applications. Like, you can't oh just God. go get a Can job. Can you imagine being in an economy <laughs> where you could just get a job the next day? What? So that that did also throw me off a little bit. But uh, but he goes and, and he's like, we're married. And the guy's like, oh, scandalous. So she gets <laughs> fired. It's it's very silly. Uh, and And so he gets her fired. Anne tells David she has no intention of ever remarrying him again. So now, like, the tables have turned. Like, why should she marry this guy? He took her out on a date and wasn't even interested in her. Like, you know, where's the romance? Where's the love? Uh, So she doesn't want to get married to him. He's got to work for it. Anne tells David she doesn't want to get married. So David's friend and law partner, Jeff... 
tells David he will talk to Anne and persuade her to remarry. Perfect friend. Small twist. He shows up at the meeting, the time and place that Jeff said, and Jeff and Anne are now working together to to be like he's her divorce lawyer. But he doesn't need to do anything because they were never married. Right. So now we get into common law stuff. And now the romance, the the romance that that how David shows his his love for her is by fighting for her and saying, we never needed to 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 do this because we were always married. We have been married. This is a this is a sham. I don't need to propose to you. It's silly. Of course I love you. So it's it is I I get it. It's it's very cute. Yeah, on a certain level, his argument that her fixation on on romance, her romantic mood is a little silly and unjustified. And it, it's more about what everyone else wants instead of what they want. Right. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, here we go. Uh, however, so, so yeah, so he's going to be the divorce lawyer. And uh, Jeff asks Anne to dinner the following night in David's presence. And David tells Anne that if she agrees, the marriage is over. And she calls him out on the bluff, and she accepts. So, again, here... Tell me if I'm wrong. I got a little bit of a gay vibe from Jeff. You know, I mean, maybe I, I feel like there might be something there very, very subtly, especially with the way that she remarks on his interior design skills later. Yeah. And she. I, how have you never been with a woman? She dogs like- on him for uh, not being violent. Uh, yeah, and he's got a limp wrist at one point. He's very close with his mother. He asked David out to dinner. He's like, "Will you go out to dinner with me?" And 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 David's like, "Wait, what? Are you hitting on me?" And then Jeff is like, "No, no, no, because I'm going out with Anne, and you can meet us, and it'll be like, oh, you you ran in, we ran into each other." So do you think? And he's like, "Oh, do you think that Jeff is faking his interest in Anne to help?" push them back together or is he really that dumb that's what i didn't know at first i thought that they were in on it together and he was like she was like his beard and he was like oh you need me to get back at your husband and i need you to talk to my parents to convince them that i'm straight but the more the movie continued the more it was like no he's really in love with her and that's to me that central the, the, the love triangle there completely falls apart because clearly they are not meant to be together and clearly the other two are meant to be together. Right. So it just didn't work for me. But it, that just might be a product. That might be like a byproduct of 1941. Yeah, we're right. We're right in the thick of the code era. Yeah. So I think like I, I, that's where it was confusing to me because I couldn't quite put my finger on Jeff. Um. But she accepts. So Anne and Jeff go to the 1939 New York World's Fair, and they get stuck on a parachute ride. And then- Wait, but what did you think of the scene before when they were at the club and David Smith was pretending uh, to talk to that lady to make her think that he was with a much hotter date than he was actually with? 
That was a silly joke, but like it surprised me that a 1941 comedy would have the follow-up of that one guy who goes, yeah, I'm not surprised this creep got knocked out by the way he's talking and hitting on my woman. This guy's a total creep. Like, I thought that was really funny because, yeah, he's he's doing this weird sitcom-y silent bit gag, which is funny, and then they call it back with an even funnier joke of, like, yeah, this guy's a creep. Of course he got knocked out. Right. And the bit of him trying to punch himself in the nose, it was... It was very silly. It was very good. Um, But yeah, they do get... And and the dates, the call girls are just totally into it. And they're just so slovenly too. Like they give give them literal scene chewing. It it reminded me of Rachel Dratch in uh, 30 Rock. Yes. In the first (laughs) season where Jack Donaghy, it's like, she's, she doesn't care. He's like, she's like, yeah, you're going to go out and buy me dinner and we're going to have a good night. Sure. Game on. Uh, but they get stuck in the parachute ride. And this reminds me again of like Larry David of the scene where he's stuck on the ski lift. And then the Jewish lady, they can't be in sundown together. So she has to jump off. It's like, uh, to me, it was like that tension of these two characters who, who like can't be together like this, but they, they are treating each other, you know, in this instance, they're like being romantic. And then it gets confusing again because she takes him home and then she encourages him to drink. It's medicine. Right. But it's not. It's alcohol. <laughs> and so he's a lightweight because he never drinks. And again, I thought maybe he never drinks because then his maybe he's a little looser with his flirty side with the guys. And so I thought maybe that's why he doesn't drink. But then he just becomes completely inebriated after two drinks. And she's like, all right, got to go. And she just pieces out. So it was. It was weird to me, but the thank you bit was hilarious. It was meant to draw a comparison between how restrained and respectful he is, even having being drunk versus David, who is like an animal. And clearly a lot of the chemistry between the Smiths is sexual. Right. So I think, again, part of that 1941 thing is they couldn't show David drinking and having a, a an aggressive sexy time with her because that's what the scene needed was I needed a comparison to go like I get the comparison because that's the stereotype is like yeah like a, a rich rich white guy gets a few drinks in him and he gets a little handsy flirty just like his creep friend at the at the right thing. but Jeff is the complete opposite he's like a beta male in that regard he's respectful he's you know he <laughs> He's nice to her. It's, and she hates that. <laughs> yeah, she does. She completely hates that. So they decide to go on vacation with Jeff's parents at Lake Placid Skiing Resort. This is, uh, maybe I missed this, but apparently this is the same resort where Ann and David had earlier planned on going on holiday. So upon arriving at the resort, David has rented the cabin next to theirs. And he's just standing in the cold and he faints. And then... He's like delirious, but it's kind of clear that he's doing it on purpose. And then it's revealed he's doing it on purpose. He's just faking so then the again, whole thing. Right. So then again, we're getting into uh, Notting Hill territory where I'm like, I'm kind of just ready for, for the central conflict to end. But the movie's got to go for the grand, uh, th- like the movie's got to repeat what happened at the beginning 
and they got to go for that grand press conference scene because the end of the movie, she shaves him, she takes care of him. And like, so we, we got to go back into that beginning mirror territory. Right. She shaved him at the beginning of the movie and now she has to shave him again at the end. So then she figures out that he's lying. So she, this is so silly. So she, she does the thing where she's next door. She's alone, but she's pretending like Jeff is it's like there a forgetting get, Sarah Marshall right? moment. Right. And so she is pretending that they're having sex or that he's coming on to her and being aggressive, which is not like him at all. But he's, of course, he can hear her in the next room. And he's like, oh, Anne, which I like Jeff. Jeff, Jeff gets it. He's a good guy. So, uh, so then David sound like he's assaulting her. Not that he's trying to seduce her, but like he's actually going to attack her. But again, she's into it. So David busts in and then they, they argue more. And then the parents come in and we get the parent callback of like, these people are crazy. And so then, yeah. And so then we, we go to the end of the movie about the parents. Okay, go ahead. I found that scene to be very funny as just from the way that the characters acted it because Carol Lombard is acting crazy and angry and just showing how very obvious it is that she is completely wrong for their son. And then (laughs) Robert Montgomery is pacing them in a circle with this little self-satisfied smile. Like, yes, finally, they can see she's a monster, but then he still loves her and wants her. I just, I feel like him showing all those layers uh, and then her, of course, acting the most was a a really good bit. Yeah. It's a beautiful touch when she storms out, when they first meet the parents and he goes like, you've just seen her at one of her most quiet, but it's obviously he's like batting his eyelashes at her. Like, that's my Anne, you know, like, that's what I love about yeah, these her. Crazy, like, it's per- it's these crazy, these crazy kids deserve each other. other. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, so the end of the movie is she goes to put on her skis cause she's going to ski her way home and, and she can't get the skis together cause she doesn't know how to. And so David puts the skis on her. And then when she stands up, he whoop, knocks her over and it's clumsy and silly cause she can't stand up. And then she gets her foot loose but then she's like, actually, I'm going to put my foot back in. Oh, David, I can't get up. Oh, whatever are you going to do? And then they fuck. Well, you know exactly what happened when those skis crossed. They, they, this is all a very elaborate rape role play <laughs> that is that that is what this is like it is i so like i get it like this is a completely scandalous movie for the time but i also like i said like i get why why hitchcock would be would be a little critical of the script because to me there's just i i can't put my finger on it like there's just some way it's delivered that that slightly clicks off for me well it's directed there's so many good it's directed better than it's written because you have um i think particularly if you're thinking about okay well you know this movie doesn't have to be visually interesting obviously but then it still is peppered with little visually interesting things like the beginning of the movie where 
Carol Lombard is kind of revealed to you in pieces. First, you see her eye. Then you see her air. Then she slowly uncovers her face. And then at the very end, when, you know, it cuts away from the couple and you see the skis slowly cross again, the end, it's, you know, it's very visually interesting and filmed in a way that's very playful. Yeah, at the beginning of the movie, she's seducing him. She's like being all cute and stuff. But they're mad at each other for whatever reason. And then at the end, she she got him. You know, like he fell into her trap. But it's, yeah, uh, when Jeff and David come out of the apartment or hotel or something, at one point, they come and they basically go like, may the best man win. And then they walk their separate ways and the camera tracks back. And you, you see that you see as they walk away, the camera gets bigger and you you see the space between them getting bigger as their friendship breaks up. Hitchcock knows how to direct a movie. Like, absolutely. Uh, he, he is, he knows what he's doing. So yeah, I think this movie, it's great, but it, it's just got that. Yeah. It, it's a great. Right. Movie. And ultimately the skis are another moment of symmetry. So she's got to shave him at the beginning yeah. of the movie. She's got to shave him at the end of the movie. At the beginning of the movie, he pretends to leave the bedroom to get her attention Uh, And then at the end of the movie, she's the one who pretends to still be stuck to get his attention. Yes. Um, And they both lie to each other all the time. You know how we were talking uh, about uh, with uh, Korean movies that torture is the Korean love language. I think that lying and scheming is the Hitchcockian love language. Lying, scheming, deceiving is the way to show love in a Hitchcock movie. Yeah. I also thought it was funny, a little bit of parallels or or whatever to, um, to pillow talk again. There's a scene where they're outside in public arguing and a cop has to sort of settle the situation. Uh, I think that's, you know, considering nowadays what cops do, it's like cops have to fight crime, you know, in, in this, this, uh, uh, what do you call it? Not, not utopian in this, in this dystopian world we live in, right? Cops have to go out and fight crime all the time in this innocent world. Cops are like, Hey, you two stop fighting or I'll split you up. Right. Um, and then <laughs> the scene where uh, she throws the pen back at him and she's like, here's your pen. It's just witty, funny little moments. Like they're sharp and, and, and whatnot to each other. I but, like the bit with the cabbie, yeah. him, Mr. Smith and the cabbie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. And, oh, and uh, when he goes, well, I have to carry you like, just like pillow talk. Yeah. In this world, it's completely logical for a man to, caveman carry a woman back home and and make her obey him that's exactly what she wants though in this case that is yeah i mean i'm not saying that women are always asking for it most of the time we're not but in her case she was pretty explicit that this is the kind of relationship that she wants uh right so who do you want to kill from this movie I want to kill Jeff. I want to kill Jeff too. What the hell, man? Why? Why? I mean, I just think that it is insane to tell your best friend and business partner 
the partner at your law firm. I'm going to help you get your wife back. Oh, actually, I want to date your wife because she's no longer married to you. It's it's mind boggling. I just, you know, there's a lot of things that I can explain away as saying, well, this is 1941. Of course, she's not going to sleep with him if they're not married. I have no explanation for Jeff's behavior. I want to kill Jeff as a mercy killing because I think he deserves better than being lured into this trap <laughs> by this woman. He's used. He's a prop. He's a prop. He's he's a pawn in her scheme. And I want to mercy kill him and put him out of his misery. Uh, but I agree. Also, total scumbag move to just go for the it's it but it's kind of like a ted danson scumbag oh, move yeah, or like ted danson hits cheryl. on cheryl david and, and he dates cheryl but it's like it's like you know that's a really scumbag thing to do but it's ted danson hitting on larry david's wife so i kind of want to see it i'm just not <laughs> like i want to see the hygiene i'm just not attracted to gene triangle. raymond like i am to ted danson oh yeah 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 ted danson is a He's a charming guy. That he is. So, so I, I'm curious. Uh, I went first for the rom-com remake, but I want to know absolutely in because we're in Hitchcock territory, and you like to you like to uh, to make ro- you, you're good at making romantic thrillers. So you know what's weird is. This being the Hitchcock episode, you and I had the same thoughts. I thought, of course, I'm going to come up with something that's going to be a thriller, like uh, some of the other ones that I've done in the past. Uh, And then I wrote a torture movie. (laughs) All right. It's Joe Wright. Yeah, it's like... uh... Yeah, here's here's my thing, but I'm gonna throw now that I have the Hitchcock spice, I'm gonna throw it on this other genre and let's see what we get. Right. I I don't know what I was thinking other than I have to get this done before three thirty. Uh, so <laughs> so that that influenced my creative direction. Uh, but I I decided to. I, I, Shira, I also took the Roger Corman approach. Oh yeah, where it's like I have a deadline. <laughs> I have a deadline. This is getting done. <laughs> right. I, you know, sometimes having a deadline is important. Some- yeah. Roger Corman. He's, he, he's in the movie hall of fame. He, that's his, that's how yeah, he did not, it. Not everyone can have, can afford to have a Fitzcarraldo on their resume. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, I decided to call this the talented Mr. Jefferson. I thought about just calling the movie Jeff, uh, but his is the character that I decided to focus on for the, uh, the horror treatment. Uh, so David and Ann Smith, they've been married for three years and they love each other very much. Uh, little do they know David's law firm partner and former school friend, Jeff is completely obsessed with them. And he's obsessed with them as a unit. Uh, He records and examines every detail of the Smith marriage. So he keeps a notebook that's a diary of everything from their fights, when they have sex, the gifts that they exchange with each other. It's just a whole Tom Ripley type of 
obsession. Uh, I, sure. Let me just say, I'm, I already like it <laughs> because that's exact. like this movie. That's exactly what this is. He is the weird guy who's into this couple. Yes. I think he wants to, yes, you know, yes. okay. Maybe Jeff isn't gay. Maybe Jeff is bisexual and he wants to have sex with both of them. I, I support this theory. Uh, it's too bad. We can't ask Hitchcock. <laughs> Um, so this get the Ouija board out. <laughs> so the Smiths, of course, are none the wiser. Uh, and then right. one day it's revealed that the Smiths' marriage is not legal. Uh, and Mrs. Smith decides to leave Mr. Smith. And Jeff, of course, is just completely devastated that this is happening. Maybe we can have a scene where Jeff goes to his um, Mr. and Mrs. Smith's shrine room because, you know, they, there's always got to be a shrine and he he tears it apart in anger. Um, and he... I was going to say, you know, what would be, you know what would be really creepy is if he had a closet with a shrine in it, just like you said. But then if he had to, like, it hurt him to take and separate the, the Mr. and Mrs. items. So now he has two closets. <laughs> And now his 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 feng shui is off, and he's torn, and it it kills him that he can't be in harmony. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. He's in distress, and he's it's like it's like reverse voodoo. Like instead of him pinning a doll and and like Mister Smith going ow, it's like Mister and Missus Smith break up, and then so therefore his voodoo dolls have to separate. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he's he's just it, this is. This is crazy making chaos. And then to make matters worse, to make matters worse, Anne has the audacity to want to go out with him. Uh, And he accepts as an opportunity to finally get into their home. So, of course. So Anne wants to go out. Anne asks Jeff out. She asks Jeff out. Just thinking gotcha. that, you know, all these past three years, clearly Jeff is intensely interested in them. So it would be reasonable yeah. for the wife to assume that it's because he's been carrying a torch yeah, for her all these years. I like oh, but it. she doesn't even know the half of it. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so. Oh, girl, I, I just watched Ghost not too long ago. Oh, girl, you in danger. Girl, you <laughs> in danger. So while he's there, he does a bunch of weird stuff. I thought it would be really yeah. weird to have him steal like a used Q-tip and tissue. You yeah. know, things that are just inappropriate to want to keep. Uh, and maybe later we see him eat them. Uh, and then, of course, David begs Jeff to help in the matter, not knowing that uh, they've been going on dates or that Jeff is just completely insane. And Jeff agrees yeah. to help, but it should be clear by now that Jeff's help is the last thing they should want. Uh, and, and maybe you can have it be like Jeff's like, I'll help them. Oh, I'll yeah. help them. <laughs> deep, uh, deep red <laughs> when it, when uh, that one moment where that guy goes I just wanted to find out who the killer was <laughs> like just that really over the top B movie like oh I'll help you alright so Anne comes to Jeff's place thinking that they're about to go on this big date and then he chloroforms her uh, and oh. Anne wakes up in a windowless room handcuffed to a metal loop drilled in the wall and she sees that david is there in the same predicament 
and of course, because David is hurt, she's worried about him and she shows genuine concern. And then they learn that Jeff is their captor. Uh, he is their, oh. yeah, he's their, um, what's the, he's the puzzle master. Yeah. Jigsaw. He's Jigsaw. Uh, and so Jeff subjects them to torture uh, with the theme of bringing them back together. But of course it's all twisted. Uh, like maybe they play the newlywed game, except every time they get an answer wrong, they're electrocuted. Uh, and because he knows more, he knows more about their secrets than right, they do. Right. Right. Oh, but when yeah. they're wrong, he can be like wrong. <laughs> yeah. um, maybe he starves them and then gives them water and food enough for just one person, barely one person. Oh. So they have to choose who gets the water and food. And of course, Dave, David wants Anne to survive. Uh, maybe he makes them slap each other. Just a bunch of really right. cruel and unusual things. Um, and despite the cruelty and strangeness of his methods, he succeeds in bringing them closer again. Uh, and they begin to hope that Jeff is going to let them go. But then Jeff reveals his final challenge. Jeff believes that their relationship is already perfect and they cannot improve on perfection. He can't bear to see them attempt to break up again. So he places a gun between them with two rounds. If they really love each other, they'll commit murder-suicide right here and now. So then Jeff leaves the room to give them privacy. And David asks Anne if she trusts him. And then she says yes, because we've reached the point where right. they really do trust each other. Uh, David takes the gun and fires it into his hand. He's then able to slip his mangled hand through the cuff. Uh, and he tells Anne that he can shoot her hand or he can break it. Uh, it's her choice. And she asks David to break it instead. And he tells her, I love you. And then he breaks her hand. Uh, and they get out of the cuffs and they find that the door is actually unlocked. Uh, and they wander through Jeff's house and they find him at the door that they were planning to leave through. And Jeff says, I'm so proud of you both. <laughs> And then David shoots Jeff with the remaining bullet, which kills him. And then Anne looks at David and says, finally, we agree on something. And the end. That's how you end a movie. <laughs> their, marriage, yeah. their marriage was saved. Yeah, that's the that's the nobody's perfect. That's the that's the curtain. Finally, we agree on something. Fuck He's yeah. got to I go. Like it. He's got to go. And you can have that. Uh, maybe you can have that moment where like, as he's dying, you know, he gives some poetic monologue about how he's the hero. And it's just like, even in death, he's like, ah, oh, I love you both. And it's just so fucked up. But, right. I feel like somebody yeah. could have a lot of fun with Jeff's character. I was going to say the, when you said that they trust each other, that's a, that's a moment where you write out like a five page scene where they confess their, like where they really confess their love for each other. And they like, they, they, they really show that they trust each other. But then when you get to the actual filming scene, the director works with the actors and you condense, if you get good enough actors, you can condense this five page scene down to, a memorable cinematic look, 
You know what I mean? Where they just look at each other and you know, boom, they're connected. They're on the same page. Like, yeah, this is a powerhouse. Like this is the love triangle. This is what's missing from the original movie is you have Mr. And Mrs. Smith, but then you also have Jeff. Who the fuck is this Jeff guy? (laughs) Uh, and so I like that you made Jeff a much more important part of the story. Of course. I mean, I have so many questions about what the hell his motives are. I, now that you mention it, I like hearing your, your movie is the better movie, but my movie also is a good movie. I'm not going to sell myself short, but I do have Jeff as an unreliable narrator Ooh. in my version. So I think... Like, I just think that's interesting that, you know, we can watch this rom-com and as we convert a rom-com to horror, we both cling to this same idea that this third unreliable narrator party is the horror element of this relationship. Clearly. Um, Yes. I'm excited now. So, yes, mine is called Mr. and Mrs. Smith because, you know... If if they can remake this movie as a, a an action spy movie and pull it off, which we didn't talk about, but is a great movie, by the way. And like my movie that I recommended last time uh, for The Birds, that's all. Mr. and Mrs. Smith is also a movie that ends on a like very anticlimactic action scene, but. Um, Okay, yeah. So it's called Mr. and Mrs. Smith. So yeah, they made an action version, same name. Now I'm making a horror version, same name. So we're going in that tradition. Uh, So we're going to start with something strange, something gruesome, some kind of some kind of weird, stylish. I don't know the style, but when I say stylish, I mean just like the artist was a. uh, a silent film it it looked and acted like a silent film like in right, um, or like edgar wright movies they're silent yes but um what's the movie that we watched the korean movie my sassy girl like right. when my sassy girl tells her stories and they break into a different genre and it's like heavily leaning into that genre that's what we're gonna do so we have voiceover it's stylish we have a guy explaining this confrontation between him and a woman and it, it's it's strange, and I can't I, I don't know how it's going to end. But either he kills her or she kills him, and then we flash forward to this interrogation scene with a guy talking to Mister Smith, and the guy is Jeff, and Jeff is like a psychiatrist guy, and he's like asking these weird questions that we as an audience don't quite understand yet. So similar to and- Usual Suspects. Right. And so then he he leaves the interrogation room and he's got to go through like a, I always get the word wrong, but like a, a decompression room. He's got to be con- like uncontaminated. Okay. He's, he's got to go through some thing where like they blast him with air and they go, now you're clean. And he's th- like a buffer. So then he goes and he talks to a council and we don't quite get who the council is. It's like a very shady eyes wide shut council. Or okay. And so these people are talking and they're asking him again, very esoteric questions that we don't quite understand. So then Jeff goes to another interrogation room and now he's talking to Mrs. Smith. And now we get a Rashomon style, different 
genre retelling of the argument. But it's also like the only thing they have in common was there was a gruesome fight and someone ended up dead. And so then we start to go back and forth. And every time we go back and forth between the different contamination rooms and buffer rooms, this guy's talking to this council and we just get the sense that these two characters shouldn't be together. Interesting. Right? That like when they're together, violent things happen. But then somehow, some way, I don't know, but something happens where like maybe these characters are manipulating Jeff to to say like we need to the only way we're going to figure this out is by getting us in a room together and and because the truth is somewhere in the middle so jeff brings them together but the problem is like this is all biblical like you know how in in the birds it's it's her sex drive she comes in and and stirs shit up and it's all gossipy and it's birds and stuff and and this movie is going to be like uh, the the late the mom in Mr. and Mrs. Smith is like you can't spend a night with him that's scandalous. Mr. and Mrs. Smith getting together is like the beast with two backs. They get together and they are fucking. They like merge into this super sexy, maybe not sexy, but this like beast monster. So like like in and, Dragon Ball Z when they join yeah. together. Yeah, I don't know how yet, but because again, I got to figure out some of the genre of this movie. I think it evolved as I was writing it. Again, we're going Roger Corman. We're thinking 60 miles a minute here. Uh, the Beast, the, 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 I called it, you know, the Mr. Mrs. Smith, the, the combined entities of Mr. Mrs. Smith. The what Mr. Are their Mrs. Pronouns? Smith starts to attack the council. Uh, oh, jeez, <laughs> don't get me started. Uh, and so they, they go to attack the council and it's like the council is trying to tell Mr. and Mrs. Smith how to run the relationship. And Mr. And Mrs. Smith is like, we're going to do whatever the fuck we want, but it's a horror version. So, you know, they got to show it by slasher killer villain movie stuff. And so then at the end, uh, at the end, Smith is destroyed and you know, it's, <laughs> Uh, it's like Smith is destroyed, but it's at, you know, it's, it's just kind of one of those endings. It's like, yeah, but at what cost, you know, it's just like a, you know, like we lost, we lost our humanity by destroying, by destroying this creature. So are there going to be casualties or is it more like uh, the descent where there's a baptism by blood and they're forever changed by the violence that they had to commit? Um, I think, I think they're forever changed by the violence. I just watched this. uh, I just watched Source Code again. Do you remember Source Code? No. So Duncan Jones, who directed Moon, right? He, the, the follow-up movie to Moon was this weird sci-fi time travel movie starring Jake Gyllenhaal, where he has to, he has an eight minute window where he has to figure out who blew up a train in Chicago. And it gets weird and it takes this extremely weird sci-fi turn. And that's what I kind of want to do with this movie, which is like, take this super weird, like maybe Mr. And Mrs. Smith aren't physically real at the beginning of the movie. Maybe it's just like their brains and maybe they did commit, like maybe they both killed each other. 
and now it's just their brains, but it's like their memories of each other. They both think that they killed the other one, maybe, but it's like it's it's mostly just about the council and the fact that we've got mm. maybe like this cyberpunk mutant cyborg thing that's going to get revenge on a council of people who say, we know how to run your life better than you do. You know, I like that. I think it's kind of a sci-fi yeah. horror. Yeah. So it, it's very Roger Cormany, very like, if we were to do this, I don't know how we would do it, but we would basically just go all in. So we would embrace the the batshit grindhousey elements. I like that. We'd have to, yeah. lots of crazy, crazy uh, physical effects. Yeah, I, I kind of picture like as Mister and Mrs. Smith merge, it becomes like virus. <laughs> How it's like this cyberpunky, crazy cool practical effects of technology and and flesh joining together, and it's like this unholy marriage, and the council's like, no, you can't have this. Very Cronenbergian. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I like that. Very cool. All right. So now it sounds like it's time for us to get into our love bites. But before we do that, where can you find us? Well, we're on Twitter and Facebook at Necromancer Pod. We are on Instagram as The Necromancer Podcast. We are on YouTube. Just search Necromancer. Uh, and we are also at email, necromancerpodcast at gmail.com. Comment, question, like. Let us know what you think. Completely. Uh, yeah, definitely help us out. You know, definitely feel free to like, share, comment, uh, rate, all the stuff that helps promote this so that we can continue to push our ideas into Hollywood. Keep the lights on. (laughs) That's right. All right. Uh, So love bites. What do you got for us? Okay. While you're searching YouTube for Necromancer podcast, I also suggest that you type into that little search bar there, fire dragon movie or fire dragon, 1994. This is a, this is a uh, Chinese martial arts chop sake action flick directed by the one and only Yuan Wo Ping. So the guy who directed the action choreography for The Matrix, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, uh, the blue, the House of Blue Leaves scene, the Crazy 88 scene in Kill Bill. He did Iron Monkey. He, so he's the guy. He's the shit. He's, Is you he know, like he's Peking opera based guy? Like, or... Or he just has been a choreographer. He's worked with Jackie Chan. He's worked with Jackie Chan. Uh, there's there's one movie that I can't remember, but it's it's basically there's not a lot of fight scenes, but it's all these dragon acrobatic Cirque du Soleil scenes, and it's really interesting. So yeah, he works with Jackie Chan a lot. Um, this is the guy, and so Fire Dragon is all about this like fire lady who she's like a witch. She's like a, she uses the fire spirits and, and ninja trickery. And she, there's, there's entire fight scenes in this movie where like her hands are on fire or her sword is on fire. The whole end to this movie is just characters doing martial arts while shit is blowing up. This movie 
has some of the most incredible action choreography. And you talk about Dutch angles, uh, Hitchcock and Dutch angles in The Birds. Uh, the Dutch angles in this movie, but it's like going from one tilt to the other. Oh, in I, a like, I like fashion. that. All characters are doing lightning fast choreography with their hands on fire. It is insane. And the story is weak, to be sure. I mean, it's a 1994, the 90s martial The story is not art why movie. you watch martial arts movie. Just like story is not why you right. watch a musical. But at the same time, you do want to get invested in these. It's not an excuse to have a weak story. Right. But part of the culture shock type of thing is they go super goofy comedy, physical comedy in between. So it's not about the story having dramatic stakes. It's about the comedic stakes in between getting raised and just the little mishaps that happen as these characters solve their problems by blowing each other up. It's incredible and it's not available anywhere else except on youtube so because i the the quality is not that great i was gonna like rent it you know go out of my way to rent it or buy it because five minutes in i was like i'm sold i need to watch this in the best quality i can but it's nowhere it's available nowhere except absolutely free on youtube oh so also if you if this does not sound like the kind of movie you would enjoy watch fire dragon trailer <laughs> type that in and just watch the trailer because it's like a cool Cirque du Soleil sounds pretty dope to me you know what I mean like if this does not sound like your thing watch the trailer be amazed by the choreography and the physical effects and get your fix but if you're an action fan definitely look it up yeah so how about you? What uh, what little love bite have you got for so us? So once again, I am recommending along our theme. So it's another Hitchcock movie that doesn't get talked about as much. Uh, so originally, Hitchcock had wanted Cary Grant for the male lead in uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. But for reasons, he couldn't use him. Now, of course, everybody knows about Notorious, North by Northwest, but there is another Hitchcock, Cary Grant movie called Suspicion. And the plot of the movie is Joan Fontaine is a spinster and a man, Cary Grant, becomes interested in her and they marry. And it's unclear, it's completely ambiguous whether or not Cary Grant is secretly a bad guy and trying to kill her and get all her money, or if he's really just a loving husband and her suspicions are completely unjustified. And so the whole movie is about this tension of whether or not Cary Grant is a bad guy. And because he's Cary Grant and he's just effortlessly charming, it's impossible to tell. He's just so good at being Cary Grant it really makes you doubt. And I like this movie because, you know, femme fatales are a dime a dozen in thrillers and noirs. You can go through all the Hitchcock blondes and all the fatal females across thrillers of that time period. And, you know, it's fine, but I love a movie with a fatal male. Give me a woman who doesn't know if her husband is trying to kill her and it's an automatic watch for me. And this is one yeah, of those that's movies. Like the, uh, 
that's the stereotype of women are drawn to true crime, right? This sounds like a true crime podcast. Like, a, like I could li- I could listen to a podcast. This on is this proto Dirty Joe for sure. Yeah. Um, so I yeah, that sounds like a great movie. I, I've got a I'm like I've got a, a, a what do you call it a 500 batting average on Hitchcock. I've seen about half of his movies. Right. There's a so. there's a ton of them. So I don't think anybody can be them. blamed for not <laughs> having seen them all. Right. All right. Well, I guess that's all for today. Smell you later. Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.